You know, there was a four-letter word in our house growing up that caused arguments, debates, tears, yelling, and probably hours worth of silent treatments. The four-letter word was R-I-S-K, risk. Do you know that game, risk? It's a board game of world domination that winning occurs by literally wiping the other person off the board, which my older brother did to me almost every single time. And when I mentioned tears, it was me. My mom would constantly ask myself and my brother, she would ask, is it worth it? The debating, the arguing, is it worth it? Of course, I would always, not in the moment, I would say it wasn't. But later, I was like, of course it was, right? For some of us, we love debating. We love arguing. We love the things we argue about, whether it's politics or religion or whether we think the Packers have any hope next year. All these kind of things we love to debate. But many of us, I think the majority of us, are probably like my mom. Can't we just get along? Do we have to care so much about these issues? I mean, does where you put pieces on a board game matter? For some of us, that's sometimes how we feel about theology or debates that churches have about theological points. Can't we just get along? Do we really have to argue about these things? Do we really have to debate these things? Well, this morning, we are going to see a theological argument and debate. Not just a small one, but a great one that is very, very contentious and heated. Is it worth it? Having this kind of argument and debate, is it? If you're going to listen to anything, here's the point this morning. It is worth it because it preserves the very essence of what the Christian message is. And we should be ready to argue for it too. The argument we're going to see today, the debate we're going to see in Scripture today, it is worth it because it preserves the very essence of what the Christian message is, the good news. And we should be ready to to argue for it too. Should we look at the scripture together? It's printed in your worship guide, Acts chapter 15. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 6, and then we will take it in chunks to, as the kind of the narrative unfolds. So let's look at the first six verses of Acts chapter 15. Together, follow along as we look at the scripture together. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, 
They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the, converse, the conversion of, gen, of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome. We are going through the book of Acts this winter and this spring. And the book of Acts is really describing the 30-year history after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And really what it's doing is it's this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is now coming in to the whole world as Jesus promised. Now the idea of the message going out to the whole world is key. Because from this point on to the point of the resurrection is really kind of been centered on a certain people group. On the Jews, the Hebrews in Jerusalem. And God's rescue plan and showing his plan of salvation through these people. God's plan has never been just for them. It's been for all the nations. And that the Hebrews and the Jews, they would be a light to the nations. And this is what we have been seeing happen. That this message of salvation that God had from the beginning of history is going out to the nations. And we've seen this happen just extraordinarily over the past three years here in Acts. That what's happened is that it's gone just more than just the synagogues and Jewish areas, but also to Gentile communities throughout the Roman world. And this is that first missionary journey that Barnabas and, and Paul were sent out on. It has actually created just this stir in the Roman world. And these communities are coming to faith. But now that progress could all be threatened. And we see that here in Acts chapter 15. Ben Witherington, a, you know, a scholar and historian, he says it's no exaggeration to say that Acts 15 is the most crucial chapter in the whole book. It's the heart of the book. It's the linchpin of the book. To open up to the whole world this message of the gospel. Will it happen? Will it simply just be this small Jewish sect that doesn't go out? Or will it actually be a light to the world? And this is what it is hinging on. This very argument, this very debate that's taking place. Now, there were some people that went up to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were. And Paul calls them troublemakers in Galatians 2. These Judaizers. And they are saying that you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised and obey the Mosaic law. That you have to do these things before you are saved by God. Now, for these groups, it must have been hard for them that Christianity came out of this culture, out of the Jews. And what happened is that their history was not even eating and being having table fellowship with the Gentiles. 
And now these Gentiles, these non-Jews, are being accepted wholesale without obeying the practices that they followed for thousands of years. We want them to do what we have done, what we've had to gone through. We want them to be like us, the Jewish community, our culture. And now they're seeing these Gentiles coming to faith, saved, without accepting this Jewish ceremonial law and Jewish customs and culture. And there are many questions and debates going on about whether these people are truly a part of this following of Jesus or not. Now these troublemakers coming into Antioch, it did not cause any small dissension. I love how it reads it in the ESV. In the Greek, it even is, sounds a little bit harsher that it caused a riot or a revolt within the church in Antioch, especially for Paul and Barnabas, this group coming in and speaking such a message. Remember, there's kind of an irony here that Paul was a Pharisee himself, and now this Pharisaical group is coming into Antioch, and he is getting so angry and so upset about what they're teaching and he used to come from that kind of group. Well, they're so upset that they're going to go to the source, right? The place where this message started, the message of Christianity, and also where these Judaizers are coming from, to Jerusalem to argue their point. They're going to go to a higher court to rule what's going on. And here there's going to be a theological debate about what is going to happen? Now, when you hear about these things of arguments and theological debates, again, it might bring back to the idea that why can't we get along? Why do we have to have these debates about theology? This is what's wrong about religion in the church. This is what causes division. Can't we just tune it out? And many of us, we've grown up with stories in the Western world that um, also kind of uh, speak to not having these kind of arguments and divisions. It's kind of what's in our ethos as Westerners. Think about it. When you read about the Montagues in the Capulets in Romeo and Juliet, they are the enemies in that story. They are the ones, because of their arguments and divides, they are not allowing true love to take place between Romeo and Juliet. Think about West Side Story, the Jets, you know, this Italian group that was in New York, and then the Sharks, the Puerto Ricans, how their arguments and debates or causing Tony and Maria not to be able to get together to love each other. When we hear these kind of stories and see these arguments and fights between groups, we say, can't we just get along? Can't we just love each other? I want to point something out in these kind of stories, examples of Romeo and Juliet and West Side Story. That there's actually arguments taking place fighting for Tony and Maria and for Romeo and Juliet. And truthfully, the, lo the loudest messages don't come through the fighting, but they come through people making rational arguments or even pleading that they are making arguments too. 
follow along with me. True, I talk of dreams, which are the children of an idle brain, begot of nothing but vain fantasy, a plague on both your houses. Do you know who that is? It's Mercutio, right? He is the greatest at arguing in Romeo and Juliet. He's saying there is a way that love is framed. There is a truth that we should fight for. There's a memorable place in West Side Story. There's a place for us. Somewhere a place for us. Right, how's that? Is that good? Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, thanks. See, even the classics, they argue. There's something worth fighting for. Right? When you talk about truth, you are arguing what the, the basis and the barriers of what love should be. When you say love is love, there's parameters of what you think love is and what you argue for what love should be. And here what's happening is that Paul and the apostles are passionately fighting for what the gospel is. That there should be a community that's accepted not based on race or culture or national practice, but it should be accepted as a free gift from God. You know, that message the idea of breaking down cultural barriers where people come together and to love each other and to be humble and care for each other, you know, that message is what's informed the Western world for 2,000 years. Sometimes we forget the very messages in Romeo and Juliet and West Side Story. That is a Christian message of breaking down nations and tribes that we can be together. And that is what the apostles are fighting for. But there's parameters of what this love is. There's principles of acceptance, humility, of breaking down these barriers. Martin Luther King Jr. said it so well. Peace is not the absence of conflict. And Paul is acting as a mercutio. Paul is pleading to the people, there is a place for us, somewhere a place for us, for Gentiles and Jews to worship together. See, the Christians are fighting for the principles of what love are, and they need to argue and debate and to reason what we should be holding to as the gospel message. Let's see what the arguments look like and the principles that they're arguing for are. Okay, verse 7 to 11. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, 
having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Well, here now comes this big debate. And there's three successive speeches that come in a row. From Peter, to Paul, to James. And here we see the unity of the church coming together of what the message should be. Now, there is much debate and arguing, as I said, but now Peter like, comes to the microphone. <laughs> He's up. And when Peter comes to speak, you could imagine people are going to listen, right? This is the rock that Christ said he would build his church. This is the one we've heard so much about from the beginning of Acts. This is the guy that people follow. What is Peter going to say to this issue, specifically because in Antioch earlier, he did not eat with the Gentiles because of the pressure from the Judaizers? Where does he stand now? What is he going to say about this debate? So he launches in and he says, again, 10 years ago, I told you about this a few different times, I was with another Gentile, Cornelius, who came to faith and was saved. And when we told the church in Jerusalem about what was going on in the Roman world, you rejoiced. You rejoiced in the Gentiles coming to faith. He's probably wondering what's happened. And he also talks about how the Holy Spirit has come to the Gentiles. Holy Spirit came without their circumcision, without their obedience to the Mosaic law first. The Holy Spirit came showing that they were saved even without circumcision. And then he gets to the foundational talk here, the foundational principle. And he is now directing his conversation to the Jews. Jews that are believers, but he's talking to them, his brothers. He's saying there is no distinction between us and the Gentiles. Just as how God saved us, he's also saving them. Something that he thinks they maybe have forgotten. Circumcision, the Mosaic law, they point to our need for the Messiah. They point that we cannot be saved from them themselves. Circumcision points that from our seed will come Christ. The Mosaic law points that we cannot fulfill it ourselves. It is a load upon us that we cannot bear. It shows that one would come to be able to fulfill the law. That these ceremonial laws of blood sacrifice and atonement, that there would one day come the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Sometimes we don't even see this when we see the text. But in verse 11, it says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It's, that, that, that is so profound. Instead of Paul, uh, Peter saying they, he says we. We were saved 
by grace. God's plan from the beginning is not that circumcision saves, not that the Mosaic law saves. His plan from the beginning was that grace is what would save us. It's been from the beginning. Don't you see that? That's, that's what saved us. That's the same thing that is saving them. So why are you putting the burden on them? Just as it doesn't justify them, it just doesn't justify us. It is grace, not works. It is by faith alone that we are saved. Right? Mic drop. Boom. And it is a mic drop because what happened? And all the assembly fell silent. I think what happens in church history is that there is this momentum or gravity or equilibrium when we're left to ourselves that we end up making salvation based on human actions and our culture instead of a God. That's the, that's the pull that's constantly on us. Right? When we move ourselves away from the gospel. And you see it through church history. Right? The selling of indulgences. Pietism. Mormonism. 20th century legalism. Fundamentalism. Why? Because it's easier to make our own standards, to create our own cultural preferences, rather than relying on God in a relationship with Him, in union with Him, to justify ourselves. That's sin. Rather than actually basing it on God and actually communion with him and relation with him and him alone, instead we'll just create our own rules, our own things, and we'll say, that's God. That's what Christianity is. When I was going to school out east, I was involved in a Christian group, and there was another Christian group um, there on the campus and it was a group called the International Church of Christ. It's not the Church of Christ. The International Church of Christ called the ICOC. And they would teach to college students, and some college students joined this group, that you had to be baptized in that church alone to be saved. That you had to go through a certain confessional step of your own sin to be saved. You had to be a part of their culture to be saved. And they would be on the street corners and in, you know, on campus preaching this message. And there would be something that would creep into me, right? Especially because I was struggling with things in college. And what happened, what creeped into me says, well, maybe, maybe I need to be doing something more. Maybe there's some action I need to take to be justified. Maybe if I follow this group, then I'll be fine. I remember I was sitting with Mark Dever, who was in D.C. too, and I was wrestling with these, these things with him. 
and he said he made a great point. The very notion in you that says there is something more I need to do to be accepted by Christ is very contrary to the gospel message. The good news of Christianity is this. It is what Christ has done for you. It's what he has done. His work that has justified you, not based on your own work. That is the good news. Don't you think these debates, you think, shouldn't they have gone away, right? No, we're still having these same arguments today. The JWs, right there in the street corner on College Avenue. The Mormons that might come to my house. Christian groups that come out of churches even in the valley that say you need to follow Hebrew customs and laws. These are selling you a false gospel. It is not good news. That is not good news. That's tugging on your heart saying, oh, there's something more you need to do. Something more you need to follow. There's some dress you need to wear. There's some drink you need to drink. There's some group you need to follow. And here, the very founders of the church are arguing to your very soul and saying, it is grace that you've been saved by faith alone. That's why I'm not part of the Catholic Church, folks. <laughs> they are still in error on this. That's a hard thing to say, especially in our community, okay? And trust me, I have lots of Catholic friends that I love. My best friend is Catholic. But we still have arguments and still have debates. Because this is what Scripture teaches. By faith alone, by grace alone, and my hope is one day the Catholic Church would change their stance and see what the Word is actually telling them. That the bishops of their church, the first ones from Peter to Paul to James, are arguing right here in Acts 15. It is by grace alone, by faith alone, that you are saved. The gospel plus nothing equals everything. I'm sorry I sometimes confuse Paul and Peter's names. I probably did it earlier here today. And it makes sense that I did, right? Here in verse 12, it's now Paul speaking and Barnabas. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Sometimes I think, Luke, you got it all wrong. Paul's the one that makes the theological arguments, right? I mean, that's the New Testament, mostly written by Paul. He's the one that's the lawyer. He's the one that makes those arguments in Romans about justification by faith and all these things. These are Pauline arguments. No. Peter is making arguments that simply are not Pauline. He's making the Christian message 
that all of the apostles and the elders have agreed to. Instead of uh, Paul giving the theological arguments, Paul gives the experience, which I love that Paul is the one giving the experiences of what's happened in the Roman world. He testifies by signs and wonders that people from different backgrounds in different cultures have been saved by grace. And again, those experiences are flanked by theological truth in scriptural backing. Experience should not create theological rules and dogmas. Instead, they should be confirming what Scripture says. They should not be leading the way. But they are confirmations to what God has said in His Word. And again, He is saying that these certain groups that have come to faith, they've come to faith even if they're from a different culture. I think that should give us some pause as the church today. That we should be paying attention to the experiences that might be going on around us in people as the gospel is shared. That we would not create boundaries for them to be able to come to faith. That they would not have to come to faith and then they be enslaved again. Maybe people wear different clothes or listen to different music or maybe like different kind of beer choices than we do. Or maybe they actually vote for a different political party. That we would not create cultural boundaries for people to be able to come to faith. There may be people in the valley that might be a different color than us. That might listen again to different music than us that might hang around different people than us, that we would not enslave them to say those have to change before they can come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that we would invite them into our homes and we would share the experiences of Christ coming into their lives and saving them and we would rejoice and we would fight for God working in their hearts even if they might look different, talk different, That is what Paul was fighting for. There's a place for us. Somewhere a place for us. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is um, talking about um, Peter, has related, sorry, Paul, has related to how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I'll return, and I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins, and I'll restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. 
For from ancient generations, Moses had it has in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Well, if the Judaizers are waiting for anyone to speak, these Pharisees, they're waiting for James, the brother of Jesus, kind of the leader in the church in Jerusalem who has sided with more of these Jewish culture people. What is he going to say to all of this? And here, James confirms that the Mosaic law nor circumcision is what justifies. Instead, it is again by faith alone, by grace alone. He is confirming these Gentiles are saved not by abiding by the Mosaic law or by circumcision. James quotes Amos in showing how Jesus was this restoration, the rebuilding of David and his household. How again, this message that is now promised to the Gentiles has come to fruition. It is a new way, yes, revealed by old promises. That the law would be fulfilled. That from them would come a Messiah. And here they are experiencing and seeing the Old Testament fulfilled by Gentiles being saved. And some people doubt that James and Paul have contradictory positions on justification. I encourage people, again, to look at this in Acts 15. When James says, and James, without, a faith without works is dead, he again stands side by side with Peter and Paul, saying the message of salvation is by grace and by faith alone. Then in verse 20, we might have questions. What is he saying? He's creating maybe these exceptions and these rules. I think it's important to look at verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James is readily aware that Paul's missionary journeys, when he goes to these different cities in the Roman world, he goes to the synagogues first, which most all cities in the Roman world had. And he goes to these places. So interspersed between Gentiles um, and others are these Jewish people that are in these cities. And so James is encouraging the Christians in these locales to be sensitive to the Jews that are in those places. And the exceptions that he gives are not simply Levitical laws. But instead, I think he's referring to worship in pagan temples, which many of the Gentiles did then maybe they would abandon those things and they'd be sensitive to those Jewish Christian believers that are around them. And that in their actions, they would be sensitive to the cultures that are coming together. I think it's very important many times we just jump to, does this mean that if I'm saved by grace, I can just keep on sinning or I can do whatever I want? Again, we need to look at this passage within context of the New Testament looking at Corinthians and Romans, where Paul continually says, you just, grace does not make you keep on sinning by no means. Instead, it transforms you and changes you to then live by the moral law. 
See, what's revolutionary about the gospel versus religion is this. Religion says, I obey, so I'm accepted. And that is what some of the Judaizers are saying. If I obey the um, Mosaic law, if I obey circumcision, then I'll be accepted. But the gospel does not say that. It says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I find it so fascinating, especially in our world today where Paul is just bashed over and over again because he's a contentious figure, people might say. He's argumentative, all these things, right? It's amazing to realize what Paul actually goes to the mat for, what he actually argues for, even to Peter as we see in Galatians chapter 2. He goes to the mat for a free gift of grace. He goes to the mat for people from different cultures to be able to come to faith. He fights and argues for there to be a church that is of all nations, saved by grace alone, by faith alone. And the things that he's more lenient about, the things that he is more sensitive about, is the cultural differences. That's where he shows more charity and love. But the things he argues for is that it is by God alone. See, this is something that's worthy to fight over to argue over. To have the Jehovah Witness in your house and say, no, no, no. That's not the Jesus I follow. To say to the Mormon, no, no. That message of grace is not the message of the gospel that was there from the beginning in Acts chapter 15. To even say, to our Catholic brothers and sisters, which some of them are, it is by grace alone, by faith alone, that I am justified. And because of that message, it is good news, and I'm freed to then obey the law and do good works more out of his power than my own. It's amazing what board games bring up in people. Maybe I'm just speaking to myself. Where we fight and argue. I want to win. And if I win, then I'll be accepted. If I fight for this position or that position or argue for this or that, then I'll be accepted. Sometimes it's fun to go through the Gospels and point out what Jesus fights for and what he argues for. He argues for the children to be able to come to him. He argues for the sick to be able to come to the front of the line. He argues for the widow, for the prostitute to have a seat right next to him and wash his feet with perfume. That's what he argues for. This right here is his argument 
to you. He's saying, I am fighting for you that you don't have to argue anymore. You don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to scratch and crawl crawl for anything else. But guess what? I have done it for you. You've been accepted by me. It's amazing the words that Peter used to his Jewish brothers that you put a load on them. He's not coming with that by his own. He sat and learned from his Savior. And maybe the words of Christ came to him in those moments. Come ye that are heavy laden. Come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. For some of you, you need that to be shouted at you. Isn't that ironic? Ironic that he has to shout and argue to us that we can just lay it down. The fights and the arguments and the the crawling and scratching to get ahead, he says, just lay it down. By grace alone, by faith alone, that is worthy to fight for and is worthy to die for so that you would be free. 